Christian Virtues Gone Mad by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Dealing as it does with interreligious dialogue, especially that between Christianity and Islam, our conference addresses one of the most salient symptoms of the larger issue which I try to address in this paper, namely the future of Western civilization, which is at this moment in a very serious crisis, a crisis of its own making. Now, I divide my time between carping on the venality, vulgarity, and moral odiousness of much of popular Western culture and working as hard as I can to retrieve and redeploy its neglected religious and moral sources. This is my main concern, and at the heart of this concern is the responsibility I feel for preserving and passing on the Christian faith, which is the quintessential source of Western civilization. For all of the West historical mistakes and sins, as René Girard has argued, the West is the culture that the gospel Christianized and that in turn has Westernized the world, awakening a secular form of Christianity's salutary ethical concern for victims specifically and for the dignity of the individual more generally. More to the point, my concern here is with the responsibility we who have enjoyed the moral, political, material, and cultural advantages of this civilization have for passing it on more or less intact to our children's children. Robert Frost said that poetry is talking about one thing in terms of another, so I will talk about my topic, which is the survival of Western civilization, in terms of the conference topic, which is the contemporary interreligious dialogue, most especially having to do with the growing Muslim influence in Western culture. I speak today as the son of a man who lost his life fighting on European soil for the survival not of American democracy, but of Western civilization. If I speak more candidly than is perhaps appropriate for a visitor from America, I do so in the name of those whose bodies are buried in countless cemeteries all across Europe, those who cross the Atlantic to risk and lose their lives in defense of the greatest civilization in the history of the world. I speak as one who believes, as they did, that this civilization, for all of its failures and shortcomings, is not only eminently worth preserving, but that it was then and is now the last best bulwark against the return of barbarism that now threatens us. Unlike the generation that sacrificed so much to preserve our civilization, many of us have lately come to believe that we can discharge our present responsibility simply by relaxing the religious, moral, social, and cultural traditions that have defined our culture, relieving our children of the burden of having exemplary models to emulate and ennobling standards to which to aspire, and taking special care not to inconvenience newcomers to our societies with any serious need to familiarize themselves with these traditions. This approach to cultural responsibility is a striking example of what G.K. Chesterton called Christian virtues gone mad, and contrary to its purported intent, it has resulted in a generation or two of people who feel entitled to the blessings Western civilization is still able to bestow but who no longer identify with that civilization in any serious way, many of whom, in fact, 
have been taught to be embarrassed by it or even to hold it in contempt. The transmutation of Christian virtues into madness has a long history. Long before we became enchanted with moral relativism and ideological multiculturalism, and before the prevailing bias of academic intellectuals and the commentariat was labeled political correctness, Chesterton himself described its English antecedents. Quote, there has been a queer habit among the English of always siding against the Europeans and representing the rival civilization, in Swinburne's phrase, as sinless, when its sins were obviously crying or rather screaming to heaven. Now, it is very right to rebuke our own race and religion for falling short of our own standards and ideals, but it is absurd to pretend that they fell lower than the other races and religions that professed the very opposite standards and ideals. There is a very real sense in which the Christian is worse than the heathen, but there is only one sense in which he is worse, and that is not in being positively worse. The Christian is only worse because it is his business to be better. End quote. If at first this attitude of cultural diffidence and deference seems virtuous, on closer inspection, it can be seen as a shrugging refusal to take mature responsibility for the often onerous task of protecting and preserving and passing along to posterity hard-won religious, moral, and cultural treasures. If our civilization is to survive in any form recognizable to those who went to such heroic efforts to fashion and preserve it, it will be because we have recovered a degree of Churchillian and Chestertonian vigor for lack of which Western civilization has been suffering for decades. I would be most happy to think that 20 years from now, Europe will have recovered its religious roots, its moral compass, and its cultural confidence, and that in light of that recovery, comments like those I am making today will be roundly and appropriately mocked for how needlessly alarmist they were. Based on the evidence I've seen, however, that does not seem the most likely outcome. I sincerely hope I am wrong. Hesitant though I am to do so, I will frame my remarks with reference to the announcement of the conference in the recent Colloquium on Violence and Religion Bulletin. I have genuine respect for our conference host and for my old friend, the current president of the colloquium, but the tone and content of their overview of the conference led me to fear that, as with some of our recent conferences, this year's meeting might steer clear of the more intractable issues in favor of cordiality. This is not a gratuitous swipe at the organization at whose birth I was present and for which I continue to have great hopes. As I see it, the colloquium's original determination to follow René Girard's example by distinguishing itself from the ideologically fashionable and politically correct academic associations from which many of its founding members were refugees has in recent years suffered some setbacks. I do not think I am alone in lamenting this trend, but neither do I think it is irreversible. I hope this year's participants in the colloquium will believe me when I say that my remarks are those of someone who has great hopes for the colloquium, and a genuine affection for its members. 
What we who care about the colloquium's future should try to avoid, I think, is the temptation to replay and repeat the moral reflexes and intellectual pastimes of the last quarter of the 20th century. For we now confront quite different problems which are crying out for both clarity and courage. Few of these now pressing problems are currently to be found on the old left liberal syllabus of errors, stuck as it seems to me to be in the 1970s and 80s assumption that all serious problems can ultimately be laid at the feet of the West. The temptation, therefore, is to return to safe and comfortable forms of Western self-criticism, a temptation which, when it comes to the issue of the growing influence of Islam in Europe, is reinforced by an understandable tendency to turn what appears to be necessity into what appears to be virtue. In his overview of the conference, our conference host wrote, quote, What then are we to make of the presence of Pacific spiritual resources within other religious traditions, end quote. It is perfectly obvious that the presence of such things in virtually every religious tradition in the history of the world means exactly nothing. Newsworthy in this regard would be the discovery of a tradition that had no such Pacific traces. The question is precisely how culturally influential have these texts been? That is to say, how profoundly have they shaped the cultures most influenced by the scriptural tradition in which they appear? Controversial though it may be, perhaps the most salient question is what religious tradition has raised its own Pacific text to positions of such prominence that its encounter with other traditions unavoidably prompts its interreligious conversation partners to pour over their own scriptures in search of texts of roughly comparable pacificity. As students of René Girard, it is also worth remembering that every culture in the history of the world exists to transmute violence into peace, the peace that is produced by the surrogate victim mechanism. Given the fragility of the peace thus achieved, one can hardly be surprised to find evidence in every culture of an aspiration for it and a scrupulosity about preserving it. Nor can we as students of Girard overlook the fact that Christianity overturns this, the world's oldest and most reliable mechanism for exploiting violence in the cause of peace, and that the crisis we face today has to do in large measure with the encounter between the civilization most under Christian influence in this regard and those other cultures which are, in various ways and with various degrees of antipathy, recoiling from the deconstructive effect this civilization inevitably has on the residual structures of sacred violence with which it comes into contact. So it isn't a question of whether Pacific traces can be found in other religious traditions. Christian thought has always assumed that they can be found precisely everywhere. This is especially so in the case of the Quran which borrows so heavily from Jewish and Christian scriptures. But again, the central question, the proverbial elephant in the faculty lounge question, is based on the conspicuous and undeniable evidence, what have been the actual 
social and historical effects of these peaceful texts on their respective cultures. G.K. Chesterton said that liberals never take their own side in an argument. But of course, we don't have arguments anymore. We have dialogues, which are, according to the prevailing understanding of that word, not only endless, but endless precisely because they are oriented toward and evaluated by congeniality and not truth. Behind much of the fanfare for dialogue lies a timid refusal to face hard facts. Facts, by the way, that are so empirically obvious that the effort to avert our eyes from them will seem all the more incomprehensible in historical hindsight, assuming, that is, that enough historical lucidity survives the coming crisis for those looking back on it to assess its full consequences. Islam is both a religion and a geopolitical ideology. And to ignore the history of how Islam's perennial geopolitical aspirations have waxed and waned according to its relative strength vis-a-vis infidel cultures on its borders is to substitute a faux dialogue for a real one. Those who regard the proliferation of mosques in Europe as no more troubling than would be the increase in Buddhist temples or Starbucks coffee shops or Christian science reading rooms, overlook both the geopolitical feature of Islam and its history. It is true, of course, that Christianity sees the evangelization of the whole world as its ultimate mission as well. But Christian evangelization consists of an appeal to reason and the free exercise of conscience. Regardless of the few historical abuses of which Christians have universally repented, Christian conversion is, by absolute necessity, the conversion of the heart. Any hint of coercion completely destroys authentic Christian conversion. This simply is not the case with Islam. And to ignore this difference for the sake of discussing a few selected Quranic texts is to misconstrue the nature of the dialogue that the contemporary situation now demands. These genteel texts are not seriously at issue. What is at issue is the resurgence of a politically and militantly assertive Islam, a great many of whose enthusiasts are eager to carry out faithfully the Prophet's command to subject the world to Allah, by persuasion if possible, by coercion if persuasion fails, and by force if necessary. However moderate Muslims might argue to the satisfaction of their Western colleagues that their co-religionists have mistakenly interpreted these Quranic passages, a great many other scholars and prominent imams can be cited in favor of these troubling interpretations. This is not to diminish our gratitude for the efforts that our Muslim colleagues are making in the interest of a truly free and civil order, an order that respects religious freedom, women, and human rights in general. Rather, it is to say that these voices of moderation are not currently and not likely soon to be in a position to shape the historical impact of resurgent Islam on this continent and around the world. However edifying it might seem to some Westerners, cherry-picking the most generous, tolerant, and pacific verses in the Quran is hardly an exercise worthy of our efforts. 
These are not the problematic text. Where, we have a right to ask, is the precise verse-by-verse refutation of the most blood-curdling passages in the Quran. It is these texts with which we must be primarily concerned, for it is these texts that are giving legitimacy to homicidal and genocidal passions throughout the Islamic world today. Ultimately, however, the question facing Europe today and the West generally has preciously little to do with these texts. Rather, it is a question about the nature and future of a civilization whose manifold material, moral, and political advantages many of us have inherited and which many others have immigrated to Europe and the other redoubts of Western civilization in order to enjoy. Celebrating as somehow culturally reassuring the discovery of a few uplifting passages in a scriptural corpus otherwise cluttered with chillingly violent and sometimes genocidal imperatives hardly seems justified, especially since these textual pursuits are not happening in a historical vacuum. Rather, they are occurring against a backdrop of what Samuel Huntington called Islam's bloody borders. No aggregation of Pacific text in the Quran is likely to have the least impact on the reality to which Huntington has called attention and which Western intellectuals try for the most part to bracket in the interest of a dialogue which once these unpleasant historical facts are bracketed becomes little more than an exercise in public relations. Not entirely useless, but very nearly so. Whether one's attention is drawn to the chillingly violent Quranic text or to the edifying and genuinely ennobling ones, sampling and swapping offsetting Quranic and or biblical quotations is an embarrassing waste of time, unworthy of those seriously concerned about the world historical upsurge of militant Islam over which such urbane discussions will have not the slightest influence. The tone of our conference host's question was echoed by that of my friend, the president of the colloquium, when he admonished the conferees to, quote, follow the best scholars of these traditions to understand those aspects we do not comprehend and to prefer self-criticism to superficial criticism from the outside, end quote. One wonders whether these are the only choices, self-criticism or superficial criticism from the outside. Is any criticism that does not proceed from an a priori assumption of moral equivalence, if not outright confession of Western moral inferiority, ipso facto superficial? And who exactly is to say who the best scholars of these non-Western traditions are? Do we not inevitably assign that distinction to those who speak in terms and tones most like our own, who mirror the ironic cast of mind that we insist is necessary? Meanwhile, are our conversation partners following the same principle? Are they preferring serious historical and cultural self-criticism? Are they facing the facts about religious freedom in Muslim-majority societies? or the seething hatred of Jews that is the mother's milk of Islamic identity in many of the most volatile Islamic societies? 
Does our commitment to self-criticism over superficial criticism from the outside render us incapable of asking for an accounting when it comes to these glaring and troubling reality? The test of the validity of these reassuring sentiments is how they might have worked under other circumstances. For example, imagine employing these criteria, the eagerness to interpret any Pacific spiritual resources that might be found in the most positive light, and the determination to prefer self-criticism to superficial criticism from the outside, if we were in conversation with, say, white supremacists. Would we be as insistent on the preference for self-criticism over superficial criticism? If our dialogue made it necessary to search for Pacific spiritual resources in, say, Mein Kampf or Mao's Little Red Book or the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, would we be as sanguine about whatever Pacific text we might find in them? And would our preference for self-criticism stifle any objections we might otherwise feel the impulse to raise? The obvious point is that, as with the happy discovery of a few Pacific texts, the dialogue principles of preferring self-criticism over criticism of the dialogue partner is selectively applied to those dialogue partners whom, for reasons not enumerated but easily surmised, we are reluctant to antagonize by asking hard and embarrassing questions. In Christian terms, the perennial attempt to maintain civil order in a fallen world obliges those striving for civility to struggle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Today, however, great numbers of Muslims throughout the world have succumbed to these powers and principalities and, in the name of Islam, are quite literally turning their own flesh and blood into instruments in a war against not just our civilization, but against non-Muslim regimes around the world. These radicalized Muslims not only vastly outnumber their moderate, learned, and often Western-educated co-religionists, but for the most part the former regard the latter with contempt. As much as we may, in most cases at least, admire the representatives of moderate Islam, to imagine that they will ever or can ever have a significant impact on the lava flow of Muslim rage that has broken the surface in societies all across the world is a wan hope indeed. Speaking as a Christian, in the face of such a challenge, there are two important principles to remember. Henri de Lubac, the great French theologian, reminds us that it is a tragedy to learn the catechism against something, an observation made all the more trenchant by René Girard's restoration of the meaning of the New Testament concept of scandal. Any no that a Christian may be obliged under the circumstances to utter to either the powers and principalities or those individuals and movements that have succumbed to their spell should be rooted in and subordinate to an underlying yes. The second principle is an extrapolation of one of G.K. Chesterton's axioms. It is that when a Christian goes to war, whether on the literal battlefield or in a moral, intellectual, or political arena, 
He does so not because he hates those he is opposing, but because he loves the faith and culture that his opponents, had they the power to do so, would severely curtail and gradually extinguish a faith without which he is certain that his own descendants would languish and be lost. As off-putting and impolitic as remarks such as these may sound to us here today, I feel quite certain that in hindsight they will be seen as more apposite than the uncontroversial conversation which all of us, myself very much included, would rather be having. For while we are finding and parsing selected Quranic verses, peering at Islamic history through rose-colored glasses, and casting a jaundiced eye on Western history, in the world outside a growing number of Muslims are openly advocating something far less attractive than a polite dialogue, namely death to their host society's traditions and death to all Jews wherever they are found, and citing in support thereof Quranic text on the authenticity of which many of our dialogue partners, perhaps for reasons of prudence, prefer to temporize rather than publicly and unequivocally repudiate. Take, for instance, the obvious truth about the degree of religious freedom found today in societies with Muslim majorities, the treatment of women in societies with Muslim majorities, and the freedom and safety of infidels, and especially Jews, in these societies. To overlook these uncomfortable realities in the interest of dialogue is to betray our responsibilities to and for those countless millions of Muslims and non-Muslims who suffer from the implacable imposition of Quranic prescriptions. All over the world, people are being killed, beaten, tortured, intimidated, and harassed for renouncing Islam or failing to adhere properly to its dictates or for having the temerity to embrace another religion or to teach Muslims about another faith. That all these things are being done by people who fail to understand Islam is a claim that would be more credible if those making it could demonstrate, not to the satisfaction of their eager Western dialogue partners, but to the satisfaction of those perpetrating these abuses of human dignity, that the Quranic verses to which the perpetrators appeal for justification do not mean what a literal reading of them seems to suggest. Whether those who stone to death women accused of adultery or indiscriminately kill innocent people in large numbers or force women and pubescent girls into arranged marriages or behead infidels or reputedly faithless wives or who throw asses in the faces of girls trying to get an education are acting in accord with the dictates of the Quran, I will leave to Quranic scholars. But there can be no doubt that those carrying out these and other barbarous acts confidently claim to be doing so in conformance with Quranic imperatives and Muhammad's exemplary life as recorded in the Hadith. Whatever arguments to the contrary their moderate co-religionists might offer, to date they have had no noticeable effect on those who, whether or not they comprise only a small minority, are dominating developments in the Islamic world and its relations with non-Muslims. 
Respecting those who profess this or that religion neither implies nor requires respect for whatever religion they might profess. In a robust pluralistic society, there is no need to respect someone else's religion. The world is full of people who have grave reservations about one or another religion, and no government mandate and no moral decree from on high will change that. All that healthy pluralism requires is that we respect individuals and honor their decision to embrace whatever religion they have freely chosen to follow. If my profound reservations about Islam as a cultural force rise to the level of disrespect, that is not because I disrespect individual Muslims or question for one minute their right to embrace Islam and live by its precepts, subordinate though these teachings are, in Western societies, to Western principles of religious freedom, the dignity of the individual, and respect for women. Nor should it be surprising or offensive to Christians to discover that those who do embrace Islam will be likely to have something less than full respect for Christianity. And why, after all, should they respect it? According to Islamic understanding, Christianity's central creedal premise, the Trinity, is a theological abomination eminently worthy of eradication. The burden of my remarks is hardly a theological one, but at the mention of the Trinity, I feel obliged to insert a theological footnote which will seem in the present context an utterly gratuitous distraction, but which in my estimation is ultimately crucial to the overarching issue on which this conference is touching. Namely, how we humans, still crippled by sin but increasingly deprived of sin's most efficacious mechanism for turning violence into peace at the expense of victims, might order our lives together. So fundamental is this issue that it should not be altogether surprising that it can finally only be answered at the religious level. And so with apologies for the seemingly awkward insertion of problematic theological issues in an already contentious discussion, let me suggest that the cultural predicament on which René Girard has thrown such a shaft of light will eventually oblige us to come to grips with the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. God, wrote Hans Urs von Balazar, could not bestow personal communion with himself and among men if he were not already in a profound sense a community in himself, a loving exchange which presupposes loving consent to another's freedom. Whenever the divinatory vista opening out onto the divine trinity is blocked, the idea of perfect community can never develop. End quote. Of course, in a fallen and sinful world, no perfect community is possible but our always clumsy attempts to form imperfect ones is, and will in my view increasingly be, deeply indebted to the theological glimpse of a loving exchange in God himself that the Christian doctrine of the Trinity provides. Therein lies at the deepest level the transcendent model for the human aspiration for humbler forms of mutuality which nevertheless and in cruder ways include, quote, 
the loving consent to another's freedom. End quote. As the Christian revelation continues to deconstruct and undermine the efficacy of the surrogate victim mechanism, crippling the world's once reliable tool for turning animosity and violence into peace at the expense of the victim, the search for a new, non-cathartic, but effectively compelling experience of communal bonding will become ever more urgent. As this happens, Trinitarian theology will gradually come to be seen as essential to the resolution of the crisis to which it now seems so irrelevant. However necessary it may be to bracket such theological concerns for the moment, those who feel obliged to bracket them should, in my opinion, take care not to foreclose a return to them when the historical situation makes that necessary, as I feel it ultimately will. In concluding my theological sidebar, let me register my belief that the sterile, sanitized, and largely artificial indoor sport we now call interreligious dialogue might be ennobled, made fruitful, and foster deeper personal friendships if we simply dropped the diplomacy and tried to convert one another. It is easy enough to remain indifferent towards someone with whom one is having a dialogue, especially the sort of dialogues we so often have today. But it is difficult to try to convert someone one doesn't like. So, were we to skip the dialogue and try to convert one another, we might find ourselves being both more charming and more charmed. Not a bad place to start, I would say. Notwithstanding the reassuring Abrahamic faith's locution, however, there remains a major problem, namely Islam's attitude toward apostasy, which is incompatible with Western culture's understanding of religious freedom and the freedom of conscience. Commenting on Pope Benedict's baptism at the 2008 Easter Vigil of the Italian journalist and former Muslim Magdi Alam, Father Shamir Khalil an Islamic scholar at the University of Beirut said, quote, Freedom to choose your religion is more important than all the initiatives put together. Without it, dialogue is not possible. End quote. The dialogue between Christianity and Islam can only seriously begin once the principle of religious freedom and the freedom of conscience is mutually agreed upon. And this freedom is not best reassured by how much it might exist in a society where Islam remains a minority, but rather how much religious freedom exists in societies with overwhelming Muslim majorities. The facts are not reassuring, and alas, they are becoming less so with each passing day. One of the many people who has suffered for having the temerity to renounce Islam not, by the way, in Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan, but in the Netherlands, is Ayan Hershey Ali, the Somali-born former member of the Dutch parliament who, because of her criticism of Islam, lives under 24-hour protection due to credible threats on her life. She is, of course, not alone in this. I have met Miss Hershey Ali and heard her speak. In my view, she would have made a fine addition 
to the list of speakers at this conference. Had she remained a Muslim and suffered comparable mistreatment at the hands of Christians or Jews, she might well have been invited. Having been abandoned by her Dutch colleagues and left to her own fate by much of the European human rights establishment, Miss Hershey Ali apparently knew whereof she spoke in a recent article in which she said, quote, Most members of the European media engage in self-censorship. Textbooks in schools and universities have been adapted in such a way as not to offend Muslim sentiment. A decade or two ago, it was unthinkable for Jews to be slandered openly and be targeted for no other reason than their Jewishness. Today, in the name of Islam, synagogues are vandalized. There are open denials of the Holocaust. There is an active network of Muslim organizations lobbying to curtail or even get rid of Israel. There are incidents of Jews being harassed, beaten, even killed. All this is met with grim silence and rationalizations. End quote. The sort of timid self-censorship that many of those who shape public opinion in Europe have adopted is prevalent as well in my country. Long before President Obama traveled the world congratulating Islam for making Europe's renaissance and enlightenment possible and apologizing for a laundry list of Western offenses, a string of historically risable soundbites that one wag called the purple prose of Cairo, his predecessor and perennial foil, George Bush, took every opportunity to reassure the American people that Islam was a religion of peace and that there was no connection between those who attacked and killed innocent people on American soil and the religion that they cited as the moral justification for their acts. The new administration, predictably, has taken this see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil self-censorship to new heights, making it official government policy to dismiss without further ado the jihadist claim that they are acting in obedience to Quranic dictates. It is not altogether surprising, however, that this refusal to accept the plain meaning of words that others speak is not always regarded as charitable by those who spoke them. As Diana West put it, quote, The fact is, President Bush's incessant declarations that Islam is a peaceable creed that terrorist traitors had hijacked or twisted drove Abu Qatada, the notorious imam in Britain linked to al-Qaeda, to comment, quote, I am astonished by President Bush when he claims that there is nothing in the Quran that justifies jihad or violence in the name of Islam. Is he some kind of Islamic scholar? Has he ever actually read the Quran? End quote. Of course he hadn't, nor have I. The point is that the Quran is not the issue. The Quran belongs to the Muslims, just as the Bible belongs to Christians and Jews. Muslims have abundant reasons for arguing with each other over its meaning, but non-Muslims have at best only observer status at that contest. As shocking as it is for those steeped in postmodernity's preoccupation with textuality to believe, it is not about text, it's about violence. It's about killing and wounding and intimidating people.
So what does all this have to do with René Girard's mimetic theory? Well, to take a plain-as-the-nose-on-your-face example, might we not ask the following questions? What cultural and historical consequences might follow from a culture's decision to hold up for mimetic imitation a warlord and slave owner who ordered the assassination of his political enemies, took wives at will, one of them a nine-year-old girl, and who generally terrified his political enemies and the peoples he and his powerful army conquered. On the other hand, what if a culture's ultimate example is a man of peace who spent his life healing and giving solace and comfort to the poor and the poor in spirit, and who walked defenselessly into the terrifying maw of worldly and religious violence to die there without lifting his hand or raising his voice. Of course, the former culture may be as unlikely to emulate the implacable violence of its moral paragon as the latter is to imitate the selfless faith and courage of its supreme model. But to imagine that these transcendent models do not have enormous cultural and historical ramifications is to ignore the central premise of Girard's work. The absence of any reference whatsoever at this conference to the cultural salience of these two starkly contrasting models is quite striking, an indication in all likelihood of mimetic effects operating at another level. If René Girard's work has any enduring meaning, it is because of its commitment to truth precisely a truth against which the mimetic consensus can be expected to array itself. To the extent that we use a Girardian vocabulary to evade the truth in favor of noble-sounding platitudes, we betray both the historical usefulness of mimetic theory and the courage of its originator. Precisely the task Girard's analysis lays before us is that of speaking a verboten truth against the pressure of a community determined to occlude that truth by slandering and shaming those who dare utter it. The word Satan, as we know, means the accuser, and he adapts himself to the New Testament's expose of scapegoating by scapegoating scapegoaters, a ruse that marginally prolongs Satan's seductive power. As wary as we should be, therefore, of scapegoating the scapegoaters, we must never let our aversion for scapegoating become an excuse for condoning by quiet acquiescence someone else's scapegoating, much less for averting our gaze from the plight of their victims on whose behalf we have a moral obligation to speak and act. Such acts of moral evasion are made all the more tawdry by attempts to endow them with an air of moral superiority by appeals to tolerance and diversity. The former construed to mean almost exactly the opposite of what it has traditionally meant and the latter an excuse for the lack of courage required to make hard moral and cultural choices. Worse still is the now knee-jerk impulse to find, or rather simply to assert, moral equivalences, which conveniently cancel each other out, thereby absolving those who construct them from moral or cultural obligations that might otherwise have been deemed necessary. Once this habit of manufacturing moral equivalences has been sufficiently inculcated to become unconscious, 
Those who fail to season their revulsion over, say, the deliberate murder of civilians or the genital mutilation of young girls with an allusion to putatively comparable offenses on the part of Western culture are regarded as moral Neanderthals. Meanwhile, those who conjure up moral symmetries bask in the glow of an ethical superiority, which is all the more desirable inasmuch as it requires no real moral effort. The subject of moral equivalence brings me to the title of our conference, Fearful Symmetries. At the time these remarks were being prepared, it was not altogether clear to me what the conference organizers might have meant this title to imply. For me, the phrase calls to mind the now ritual invocation of moral equivalences about which I've just spoken. These artificially constructed moral symmetries demanded by multicultural piety are fearful precisely because they are driven by fear. Fear of offending those it would be imprudent to offend and fear of having to recognize what is actually at stake and how serious are our moral responsibilities and how likely it is under the circumstances that meeting these responsibilities will demand ever greater degrees of real sacrifice. Aside from its commitment to truth, mimetic theory necessarily entails an acute awareness of the plight of the victim. Seen from this perspective, it is essential to note that the recent influence of Islam in Europe and other Western societies has coincided with a sharply increased incidence of the mistreatment of Jews, women, girls, and in the Muslim enclaves, infidels generally. Only last week, a British study revealed that there are 85 Sharia courts operating in Britain, ruling on matters over which British law has, in theory, a monopoly. At the same time, the forced marriage unit of British law enforcement reported an 80% increase in the number of forced marriages in Britain in just the last year. The estimated number of forced marriages last year was 8,000. That the British constabulary at some level has been compelled to establish a forced marriage unit speaks volumes about the real challenges facing Great Britain today, as does the fact that it has so profoundly failed to curtail forced marriages. But for many today, these things are less morally troubling than mentioning them in public or in print. In varying degrees, Jews, Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, and others suffer discrimination in majority Muslim society. When available for mistreatment or political castigation, however, Jews remain the Islamic scapegoat of choice. The Jews are the official and catch-all repository for the pent-up animosities of Islamic societies seething with discontent all over the world. Global anti-Jewish passion is the political narcotic of choice for the global jihad. If we who are informed by mimetic theory are to look with clarity on the confrontation between Islam and whatever remains of traditional Western civilization, we must, it seems to me, keep our eyes on the fate of the Jews. It can no longer be seriously doubted 
the Muslim world has made it perfectly clear the paramount enemy of Islam is the Jews. It is a view that dates back more than a millennia and that ultimately has nothing whatsoever to do with the politics of the Middle East. However attractive that claim may be for those hoping to appease the rage of Muslim extremists at the expense of the Jews in Israel and elsewhere. And so there are three unavoidable topics that must be candidly explored in any dialogue worthy of its name between Islam and Western civilization, namely religious freedom, the fate of the Jews and other non-Muslim believers in majority Muslim societies, and the freedom and dignity of women. Whatever examples might be found of discrimination against Muslims in Western societies, and however necessary it is to renounce such things, these abuses pale by comparison with the unconscionable mistreatment of both Muslims and non-Muslims in Muslim-majority societies throughout the world. To claim that some societies remain more implicated in the old system of sacred violence than do others is not to scapegoat those societies. It is simply to make an observation, one subject to empirical falsification. It is to choose one moral and cultural order over another. To fail to make such a choice on behalf of one's children and grandchildren is not tolerance. It is indifference, and it is contemptible. Acquiring the moral habits on which so much of Western civilization is built requires time and effort. But with a fraction of that time and effort, one can learn from the virtuosos of victimary thinking how to game the system for political advantage. To St. Paul's insight that sin takes advantage of the law should be added the realization that sin takes advantage of the gospel as well. And so... Though we must not relinquish the realization that the victim is the locus of truth, we must also recognize how easily this moral insight can be hijacked in a society as historically indebted to Christianity as ours is. In a July 4th posting of his Chronicles of Love and Resentment, Eric Gans, a friend to many of us and a gifted and original thinker, wrote of the recent Generative Anthropology Conference in Ottawa. In it, he said something that it would be good for those of us who care about the colloquium on violence and religion to ponder. Gans wrote, quote, Unlike all the successful critical movements of the present generation, generative anthropology has no victimary clientele. It is understandable that those with victimary credentials prefer to use them to advantage by participating in the critical mainstream. Collective resentment remains the privileged discovery procedure in the humanities, and those who are not born into an appropriate collective are encouraged to attach themselves to one. Inasmuch as mimetic theory and generative anthropology deploy slightly different epistemologies, mimetic theorists, for both moral and intellectual reasons, may necessarily and unavoidably have a victimary clientele. If so, it is all the more incumbent upon us to avoid letting the concern for the victim be exploited in such a way that the plight of real victims is overlooked in favor of those who have learned to manipulate the ethic to their advantage. 
We who hold Rene Girard's work in trust and who will influence in some small way at least how those coming after us will assess and extend that work should strive to imitate as best we can Rene's admirable willingness to stand outside the intellectual fashions of the age and to speak with courage and clarity irrespective of the name-calling that predictably ensues. Today's sentimental multiculturalism is a poor substitute for and a parody of the kind of political pluralism of which Western civilization can be justly proud. An unparalleled accomplishment, which is the historical outworking of Christianity's God and Caesar understanding of the relationship between religion and political affairs. Among the West's most successful experiments in this cultural pluralism has been America's melting pot. What both Europe and the U.S. need to bear in mind today, however, is that the melting pot works only as long as the pot itself doesn't melt. Ideological multiculturalism, moral relativism, and the unadjudicated declaration of the equality of all religions and cultures represents precisely the melting of the pot itself and the death not only of these pusillanimous fictions but of the cultural generosity of which they are a grotesque caricature. Western civilization is flawed as is every society in the history of the world. Not only are the flaws of Western civilization widely known but they are widely known precisely because this civilization is the only one in human history that has made a point of systematically calling attention to its own moral failures and excesses and repenting of them. No other civilization in history has so methodically instructed its young on its own historical transgressions. Although today these transgressions are often ludicrously exaggerated in a politically correct fashion by Westerners and non-Westerners alike for ideological reasons, this act of cultural honesty puts this civilization head and shoulders above other cultures from whose historical recollection more numerous and more barbarous acts have been systematically expunged. Moreover, and most importantly, the greatness of Western civilization is rooted in its religious heritage. The moral and political and scientific and humanitarian achievements of the West are due directly to the Jewish and Christian worldview from which it draws its inspiration. And Christianity remains the one and only guarantor of its cultural sustainability, the sine qua non of its cultural pluralism and generous spirit the spirit to which my father's generation responded in 20th century Europe's time of peril. As the Iranian-born ex-Muslim Ali Sina acknowledges in his book Understanding Muhammad, quote, If any culture needs to be preserved, it is the Western Heleno-Christian culture. It is this culture that is facing extinction. It is to this culture alone that we owe the Enlightenment, Renaissance, and democracy. These are the foundations of our modern world. It would be a terrible mistake not to preserve this culture. If we do nothing, we face a future where democracy and tolerance will fade and Islam's more primitive instincts will subjugate humanity. All cultures are not made equal. 
we owe our freedom and modern civilization to Western culture. It is this culture that is now under attack and needs protection, end quote. To say that communism or fascism or the Hindu caste system or Sharia Islam are culturally inferior alternatives under which one does not want one's great-grandchildren, especially one's great-granddaughters, to be forced to live, is not to scapegoat or victimize or slander. It is simply to reject one account of human meaning and the way of life commensurate with it in favor of another. It is to make an intelligent and intelligible judgment for which a mountain of corroborating empirical evidence is available. As Ibn Warwick has put it, quote, a culture that gave the world the novel, the music of Mozart, Beethoven, and Schubert, and the paintings of Michelangelo, da Vinci, and Rembrandt does not need lessons from societies whose idea of heaven peopled with female virgins resembles a cosmic brothel. Nor does the West need lectures on the superior virtue of societies in which women are kept in subjugation under Sharia, endure genital mutilation, are stoned to death for alleged adultery, and are married off against their will at the age of nine. Societies that deny the rights of supposedly lower caste, societies that execute homosexuals and apostates. The West has no use for sanctimonious homilies from societies that cannot provide clean drinking water or sewage systems, that make no provisions for the handicapped, and that leave 40 to 50 percent of their citizens illiterate, end quote. Though former Muslims like Ayan Hershey Ali, Ali Sina, and Ibn Warak speak in tones less modulated than we are used to hearing, their candor is hardly reason to discount their first-hand experience of matters which most of us know only from a safe distance. Meanwhile, not everyone has the luxury of living at a safe distance. When responsible members of the European political and intellectual elite dismiss such warnings, they run the risk of turning their own fears about xenophobic fanaticism into self-fulfilling prophecies. For those who live closer to the flashpoints of Western cultural disintegration than most of the political and intellectual elites could very well turn in their frustration to more dubious, angry, and xenophobic political parties and demagogues. The ultimate question before us is on what foundations will the civilization our children inherit from us be built? The critical criteria for making that judgment is not how many Pacific texts can be found in the Quran or the Hadith or how gingerly we can avoid any, quote, superficial criticism of others in favor of the safe and self-satisfying exercise of cultural self-flagellation. Rather, the criteria for making that judgment is how many of the cultural benefits that we have inherited from those who went to the trouble of preserving them Will we have the fortitude to preserve and defend and pass on to those who come after us? All the more glaring will be history's retrospective assessment of our tenure as cultural custodians inasmuch as our performance will inevitably be compared to that of our immediate cultural predecessors, those about whom Winston Churchill said that never have so many owed so much to so few. 
Here, however, is where the sobering reality presents us with an opportunity to reclaim our dignity and to conduct ourselves in ways worthy of our predecessors who rose to meet comparable challenges that they faced. Whereas their task required more physical courage than ours has yet asked of us, our task requires moral, social, and especially religious acts of retrieval and revitalization of which their world was in far less need than ours. Though our crisis is the logical extension of the one they valiantly faced, it confronts us with challenges that cannot be solved with military power or mere physical courage alone. Our challenge requires a religious renaissance of the sort that few today can credibly imagine. It is later in the day than many realize, so much so that one unavoidably feels a special kinship with St. Augustine, who watched the decadent Roman civilization of his time succumb to moral erosion and civilizational collapse. But beyond that, and much more importantly, our situation gives us reason to ponder again the words of Christ in John's Gospel. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The sobering fact is that the cultural and anthropological implication of this subtly apocalyptic allusion to nothing is being demonstrated in our time and in our midst. Today, the haunting harbinger of Johannine nothing is to be found in the post-Christian multicultural nihilism into which moral relativism and political correctness are rapidly transforming. But the light that comes into the world with Christ is, happily, a light that shines in the darkness. In the midst of the darkness of today's cultural nihilism and the crisis it augurs, it is still possible to discover, to our great astonishment, as Ezekiel famously did, that what looks like dry bones can, by the grace of God, come to life again in the most unexpected way. It is for this that we must pray and strive and never despair. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.